Innovation Ag is made on the lands of the Gunditjmara and Wurundjeri peoples. We acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to the Innovation Ag podcast, brought to you by the Victoria Drought and Innovation Hub. I'm Kirsten Diprose. This is a short bonus episode from a recent event we hosted in Bendigo. You're about to hear the keynote address from Dr. Rob Fadjian. That's really about aligning scientific and technical innovations with good government policy. Now, that might sound a bit dull. I promise you it is not. Because if this doesn't happen, we end up with research gathering dust and government talk fests with no action. So in this address to the Vic Hub's think tank called Are We Drought Ready?, Rob looks at local government responses to climate adaptation and outlines some of his own research, which is about using climate modelling not to scare people about future scenarios, but rather empower action in agriculture. My name's Rob Fadjian. I'm from Deakin University and in particular the Centre for Regional and Rural Futures. I represent the climate resilience thematic area within the Drought and Innovation Hub. And within that program area, I work with colleagues from the University of Melbourne. Now, today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the research that we do in a very general sense. What we do is work with farmers to build models to assess the impact of climate change. Just a a quick bit of background. This is uh, annual mean temperature across Victoria for the bulk of the millennium drought. And that's uh, 2050, according to one of the the worst-case climate scenarios. So it looks, you know, substantially uglier. We've still got a lot of uh, mouths to feed in the future. And as such, it's important to talk about climate change and obviously uh, drought is integrally related to that and how we can continue to be productive with food. We develop models that incorporate climate, so rainfall and temperature, whole suite of soil parameters and topography. We put those into a big, ugly mathematical model and we deploy them in a a GIS environment. So the output is a map. That means we can look at the spatial differences. In this case, this is an example from the southwest, and wherever you see green, dark green, is where we would expect good yields for that particular commodity and where the colours transition to uh, lighter greens and yellows, those areas are less suitable for that particular commodity. I think this, this is perennial ryegrass. So that's, that's the historical situation, and this is 2070. So you can see that the situation declines quite, quite a lot, you know, acknowledging that this is all scenario-driven. We still have lots of decisions to make that will impact on the trajectory. What we try to do is where we have to present some bad news, we do some additional modelling to look for alternatives, to look at the opportunities, to look at the, the uh, options. A PhD student of ours modelled, I think, up to 30 commodities. And although perennial ryegrass suitability declines over time under worst-case climate change scenarios, there's another five or six pasture species that actually either improve over time or don't uh, show any significant change. This is broadly the workflow that we go through. So we will develop these spatial models with farmers, with local organisations. So we've got a couple of partners here, Sally from Bendigo Council and Mandy from the CMA. So we will roam the countryside, talk with farmers, talk with other experts with the help of our partners and validate these models. So we'll actively ask the farmers, does this output make sense to you? 
If not, where can we make changes within the model? It's an iterative process to, to get these models looking like something that they're prepared to accept. Once we've done that, we just insert the climate projections and look at the full envelope of possibilities. That becomes the basis to look at other things. So we might then link it to economic models and look at how break-even yield or uh, profit margins evolve over time. We might link it to transport models or environmental models or whatever the case may be. Ultimately, what we generally do is put the outputs into some sort of publicly accessible tool, uh, generally an online tool, because we want all of these models to be used. We don't want them to be in reports that gather dust in a, a local government shelf somewhere. I won't talk about this too much, but it's probably something for discussion later on. Another thing that we're looking at, considering the drought theme, is the concept of blue-green infrastructure that's been pioneered by the Dutch. If they've got an area that's prone to flooding, they'll modify the landscape so that the, the flood water is redirected to areas where it won't do any damage. And if that means allowing farms to flood, the farms will receive a rent from their provincial or, or local government. Now, this is something that we're looking to test here. We're doing it theoretically at this point, but ultimately, considering we've just had floods and most of that water has flowed out to sea and the next drought is coming, I think this is something that we need to look at. This is one of the tools or an example of the tool. So it's an online tool. Farmers can zoom in on their property. They can look at different climate scenarios, different commodities. And this is something that we're developing for two regions. So the Sunraysia and the Gippsland region within the Drought Hub. I mean, the, the maps are good because everybody loves a map or a diagram or a figure. It makes the data much more accessible. It immediately allows people to zoom in on their location and look at the place-based and specific information and make inferences from that. And for us, the outcomes have been generally really good, provided that local leadership is proactive and prepared to be accountable and, and use the information. So from here on, it's just my opinion, uh, so don't be offended. But in my opinion, we've had very poor leadership on a lot of these issues for a number of years. Um, I don't think I need to name names. And the COP process has turned into a circus. So we had the most recent COP sponsored by Coca-Cola, which is ridiculous. And we've got uh, oil company chief leading the next one. As somebody who's, you know, relatively up to their eyeballs in, in climate science and, and looking back at the history, it was 1896 when the Swedish scientist Arrhenius was able to do some calculations and show that with a doubling of CO2, we would get a certain temperature increase. And he was within the ballpark, considering what we're able to, to calculate now. So that's 1896. We had enough information, enough knowledge about climate change to start to cotton on to what's going on. 1939, Time magazine was running articles about how winters were getting warmer. 1957, scientists were having a public debate about what they called great geoengineering experiment that we were running by putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So long before the IPCC was established, we've known about climate change, we've known about the implications of putting CO2 in the atmosphere, and yet this sort of thing, for want of a better term, has delayed action and has stymied reasonable discussion about it all. I think some of the stuff that activists do is a bit counterproductive, but this is one area where I wholeheartedly agree with Greta when she said at her famous speech that all you're doing is blah, blah, blah. Lots of unnecessary talk. 
In order to not focus on local governments that I've worked with and put anybody on the spot, I thought I would do an analysis of what their equivalents overseas are doing. There's different names, there's provincial governments and local governments and so forth, but I've tried to find the equivalent and just looked for what are they doing in a tangible sense to deal with drought and climate change. Three categories emerged, so construction of new water storage infrastructure, the implementation of region-wide water conservation strategies, and delivering education and infrastructure and other programs to support sustainable agricultural practices. So these were real actions that these local government equivalents overseas were taking. I think they generally share something in common, which is that they are from developing countries, with the exception of South Africa. Now, when I looked at the other end of the extreme for, again, I'm comfortable to speak my mind a little bit, and I would say this is the virtue signalling end of the equation, there was promoting the use of renewable energy, a plan to be carbon neutral by some date in the future, and converting organisational fleets to EVs. And almost universally, these were local government equivalents in developed countries. So again, in my view, this is the Greta blah, blah, blah stuff. But I think what it tells us is that local and regional leadership is critical. We can't rely on our national, international leaders. The top-down approach has been a total flop so far, and we're going to have to rely on the bottom-up, which is us. I think that means we can each make a choice. We either take action, real action, and considering what we saw in the IPCC report, that's absolutely necessary, or we can continue with the blah, blah, blah and kick the can down the road. So I'll give you two examples. The work that we're doing with Bendigo is, uh, is fantastic, but it's underway, so I haven't used that one. Uh, we did do some work with the Southern Grampian Shire Council a few years back and the Glenelg Hopkins CMA. Again, just placed a PhD student there who did a lot of this modelling, talked with farmers. Now, they were fantastic. They took the outputs, they created tools, they used the information as a mechanism to try and drive economic development. So they were talking with farmers outside of their region about what they could do if they moved to Southern Grampians and the southwest, and they used it to inform local land management strategies, to help farmers, new education programs, etc. By comparison, we also do a lot of work with urban and peri-urban councils, and I've included a quote. Uh, this is some feedback we got back on uh, a, a report that we submitted. Um, you know, lots of markup, and this is kind of representative. You know, almost all land use controls are the responsibility of the state. We could possibly advocate, uh, but have no direct influence. Please delete this recommendation from the report. And that was the recommendation was that they'd possibly think about not building over good agricultural land. So it wasn't anything too controversial. But I think you can see there which camp sits in the action area and which in the, the blah, blah, blah area. To conclude, I, I hope that we can have some honest and objective, good discussions and make this choice with the benefit of all of the expertise in the room. Thank you. Dr Rob Fadgian there from Deakin University's Centre for Regional and Rural Futures, who's also involved in some of the climate resilience projects through the Vic Drought and Innovation Hub. Rob was speaking at the Hub's recent think tank, Are We Drought Ready?, held at La Trobe University in Bendigo, 
And I'm excited to say we'll be bringing some more speakers to you from that event in future episodes as well. And that's it for another episode of Innovation Ag, brought to you by the Victoria Drought and Innovation Hub. You can find the episode transcript on our website, vicdroughthub.org.au. Thank you for listening. This episode is written and hosted by me, Kirsten Diprose, produced by Rachel Thompson, and we have editorial input from scientists, academics, and farming groups involved in the Victoria Drought and Innovation Hub. This podcast is funded by the Australian Government's Future Drought Fund. Catch you next time.